what's up, Northridge Church? It is good to be with you all this morning. Grateful to have you here wherever you might be joining us from, whether that's one of our four Rochester area campuses or maybe you're joining us online. We are grateful to have you here. My name is Nate. I am our Webster campus pastor. Shout out to everyone in Webster. Hope you guys are having a great morning so far. I love you guys. And uh, I'm honored to have a chance to speak today. And uh, I thought today before I dive into my message, I wanted to just give our church kind of an update on how we are doing with gaining ground. And uh, if you've been here for the last six months or so, you know that we as a church, Northridge Church, are gearing up to help take our Webster campus from portable to permanent. And I wanted to give you a couple updates on how that is going. First and foremost, we've purchased the property at 780 Salt Road. We own it. It is ours. And that is great and exciting. Um, Secondly, we are not that far away from the construction phase now beginning. In fact, we are set to break ground middle of September is what our our timelines are looking like. And so things are moving along. Things are going really well. We're excited about that. And as a way to kind of celebrate this new phase in the project, we are doing a breaking ground ceremony. That will be taking place on September 12th at 6.30 p.m. And we would love to invite the entire church out to the Breaking Ground Ceremony at 780 Salt Road. We're gonna have little shovels for the kids. We're gonna have hard hats for the kids. And uh, we'll just have a ton of fun together. So come, bring your family, bring a shovel, and uh, we will celebrate all that God is doing, his faithfulness in the past and his faithfulness in the future as we take this next step of Breaking Ground um, together as a church. And then also on the, on the giving side of things tied to gaining ground, just want to give you an update on that. We are 19 weeks in out of 104 weeks, and we have already seen over a million dollars come in for uh, gaining ground, which is incredible. Thank you all for your in- amazing generosity uh, as a church. Um, that's just incredible. In, in fact, it's been really cool just to hear even some of the stories of how individuals and families are sacrificing and coming together um, to be a part of this uh, exciting opportunity within our church. So thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your support as well. Many people are reaching out. I know many people are praying. Please continue to pray as we move forward together at taking Webster from portable to permanent and all that God has in in store for our church in that. So uh, as we get ready to dive in today, man, I I hope you brought your Bibles. I hope you guys are excited to to dive right on into chapter four of 1 John. In fact, I would encourage you, if you haven't done so already, go ahead and turn to chapter four of 1 John. If you are using one of our Bibles at one of our, one of our campuses, you can find that on page 987. We've been in this series called Verified, where we, that's really the theme of 1 John, where John, our author, is trying to help us understand what does it mean to be a true child of God? What are true signs of faith? How are we able to discern between what is real and what is fake? And today, as we go through chapter four, I hope you have your Bible, a Bible in front of you, because I want us to walk through this chapter together to see what John has for us today. And really, there's two main sections when we look at chapter four. There's the first section, which is verses one through six. And here in this first section, John actually does something that he's really already done. He did this in chapter two, and he starts again with another warning. And he really is just telling us, look, don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you hear. We must be wise. We must be discerning. The mark of a true follower of Jesus is one who is able to discern truth from lies. And in fact, I'm going to go much deeper into these verses in our Verified podcast later this week. So I would encourage you, if you haven't checked that Verified podcast out, please do so. We've been getting a ton of great feedback um, from you on how much people are enjoying that as we dive deeper into each of these chapters. Um, But I'm going to talk more in depth about that in that podcast. And today, what I want to do is I want to spend the majority of our time in the second portion of chapter four, and that's verses seven through 21. 
And here in verse 7, John transitions. And what he's about to say to us is as foundational as it gets. It's as foundational as it gets to the Christian life. And he transitions really into the what's at the center of everything, the most important thing. And in a, in a book that is relatively small, like 1 John, it's only five chapters. So in a book that only has five chapters, John, he picks up his pen and he writes out the word love a total of 46 times. 46 times over the five chapters, but here in the next 14 verses, John uses the word love 27 times. What is it that you think he wants us to understand? What is it that, you, that he's trying to make sure that he gets across to his audience and to us today? And uh, that's what I want to try to help us understand too. What, what is it that John's trying to help us see? And I think this portion is also one of the most popular portions of 1 John. I think it's one of the most quoted or well-known. And I think the reason why it's so well-known is because John is talking to us about Christian love here. He's talking to us about love, and I think the reason why it resonates with so many of us is that you and I, we are hardwired. It is in our DNA to not only receive love, but to give love. But here's the reality, and the harsh reality, I guess, of the human existence in our day and age, um, especially, is that we are confused. (laughs) We are confused on what exactly it means to love. In fact, Aaron Hickson talked about this a few weeks ago, right? We use love in so many different ways. In one sentence, we can say, I love ice cream. And then in the next sentence, we say, I love my my kids. Are we really talking about the same thing there in those two statements? No, we're not. I hope we're not, right? Some of you might be like, well, actually, that's not too far. I don't know. (laughs) No, we're not talking about the same thing. So it can be confusing. And then it gets even more confusing if we look to popular culture to try to find our definition of love. In fact, how many of you have heard of the show The Bachelor? The Bachelor. One guy was like, I'm just asking if you've heard of it. Not if you've watched it, just if you've heard of it, okay? I would imagine the majority of us, we have heard of the show The Bachelor. But did you know that 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 show, it has been on for 23 seasons? 23 seasons. It's still one of the most successful reality TV shows of all time. 23 seasons, millions and millions of viewers that are tuning in to see this love put on display, um, love defined for us. And did you know that out of those 23 seasons, there are only two surviving marriages today? Isn't that crazy, man? But we crave love. We are obsessed with love. But the problem is oftentimes we are pursuing a fake, counterfeit view of love. And what John is gonna try to help us understand is look, there is a much better deeper, truer love that we must come to know and understand. And so he's gonna, in that remainder of this chapter, walk us through really three things we must understand about love. And the first is this, we must understand the source of love. So let's pick it up in verse seven of chapter four. Here's what, here's what our author John says. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So here, John is crystal clear. He's telling us, okay, who is the source of love? God. God is the source of love. He's as clear as day. For love comes from God. God is love. So God is the source of love. And it's interesting, John actually begins this section with a phrase. And this is a phrase that he has used all throughout the book so far. And it's that phrase, dear friends. 
Another way you can actually translate that is beloved. Maybe some of your Bibles use that word beloved. And that word literally means to be loved. So John is trying to help his audience understand not only does he love them, but God, who is the source of love, he loves them. And that's so important for us to, I think, understand. I realize it may sound small, like beloved, to be loved, okay. But when we, when we really wrap our minds around the fact that God loves us, man, that should change us. That should, should totally transform our lives. Recently, we were together um, as a family. Um, my wife, Emily, and I, we have three kids, Olivia, Landon, and Claire. And recently, we, about a month ago, we were all watching a movie together in our living room. And so we were all kind of spread out across our living room, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye that my son Landon, he was sitting on the couch with my wife, Emily. And my son Landon, he's six. In fact, in three days, he turned seven. But he was sitting on the couch with my wife, Emily, as we were watching the movie. And I just noticed as we went and we were watching the movie, every once in a while, my wife would just kind of lean in, give him a hug, give him a little snuggle as they were watching the movie. Every once in a while, she would just kiss him on the back of his head. And it was just so sweet in that moment, I was just struck with the fact that for my son Landon, he never has to doubt, wonder, or worry that his mom loves him. My son Landon, he is so secure in the love that his mom has for him. And in that moment, I was just struck with this reality of, man, it's just a small picture, just a small taste of how much God loves me and how much God loves you. And it's not just some touchy-feely, emotion-driven kind of love. It is a deep love. In fact, the word that John uses here for love is really important. In the original language, in, in Greek, he uses the word agape to describe this kind of love that God has for us. And the reason that that is important is because it's the deepest kind of love. You see, in the Greek language, they have four words that they use to describe love. In the English language, we only have one, which is in part why there's confusion over what do we mean by love. Like we can say we love ice cream and we say we love our kids. Well, here John uses the deepest form of love, agape love. And that's important for us to understand because that is a pure, not self-seeking, it is a sacrificial type of love. It's a kind of love that doesn't come from your emotions. It's a kind of love that comes from your will that you're gonna love someone sacrificially, put their needs before your own, and agape love. That is the, the, the word that John uses 27 times in these 14 verses. So John is reminding them, God is the source of, the love, of love, and he loves you in a deep way, in an agape love. So if God is the source of love, then God then is the one who sets the example of love. John continues in verse nine. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. I love that God initiated, God pursued us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So John is telling us, look, is Jesus is the example of God's love. Jesus, he is the example of God's love. Jesus is God's love on display for the whole world to see Right, and aren't you thankful that God didn't just like shout down from heaven like, hey, I love you guys. You're doing great down there. Good job, keep it up. No, he didn't just shout his love. He showed us his love through his son, Jesus Christ, and sent him to die for us, to pay for our sins, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we could be made right with God. So Jesus entering into creation, coming into the world, living a perfect life, and going to the cross to pay a debt that we owed 
That is a perfect example of agape love. A love that's pure, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional. A love unlike any other. So Jesus shows us and defines what love is supposed to look like. A different kind of love than the world knows. It's different than the bachelor love that so, so many in our culture are familiar with. And what John is doing here is he's really trying to help us understand and define love. And if I were to define it, I would say it this way, that love is an act in the best interest of another. That's love. That's what it means to love in an agape way. It's an act in the best interest of another. And not just the people that are easy to love, right? Not just the people that look like us, act like us, talk like us from our same people group, our same tribe. No, oftentimes it's a love that is aimed at and directed at people that are different than us, that are hard to love, that are challenging to love. And we're called to love everyone in this way. So we know that we're called, we know who the source of love is, we know who the example of love is, that's Jesus. Now Paul is gonna really start to get a little bit more practical and talk through just, okay, what that means then for us as followers of Jesus. Look at verse 11. He says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So really what John is trying to help us understand is that we must reflect his love. It's not optional. If you're a follower of Jesus, one of the things that will verify your faith, that show, man, that you are in, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you will reflect his love in the way that you treat other people. And really, John continues in the rest of this chapter to kind of show us now what it then looks like to reflect his love. He continues and he tells us then that a way that we reflect his love is that we live a spirit-controlled life. We live a spirit-controlled life. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Mark talked about this last week. John again said the same thing in chapter three, reminding us that when you cross the line of faith, when you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus as the forgiver of your sin, he's the leader of your life, that the Holy Spirit actually takes up residence and he lives inside of you and he is with you. And a way that we reflect his love is by demonstrating and showing that we are living a spirit-controlled life. Meaning that my life is so surrendered to God that when I feel his spirit pressing down on my heart and on my conscience, that I pause and I yield and I listen to what he is saying. And instead of making this decision or saying this or going here or doing that, I'm sensitive to God's leading in my life and I redirect. And I get my eyes focused back on pleasing him and living a life that honors him. So how do we reflect his love? Well, we're not controlled by ourselves and our desires. No, we live a spirit-controlled life. He continues and says also that we proclaim that Jesus is God. Another way that we reflect God's love is that we proclaim that Jesus is God. Look at what he says in verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. What I love here is just the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel here. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. It's the beauty of the gospel that at any point you can cross that line of faith. It's just you and your heart before God recognizing, God, I believe in you. I believe that you sent your Son to die for me in my place and I place my trust, I transfer my trust to Jesus in this death on the cross and I surrender to you. 
And really what John is pointing out in that statement, again, is really tied to the Gnosticism that was in the church and the false teachers because there were false teachers that were denying that Jesus um, was God. They were denying that Jesus was the son of God. And so John again is saying here, look, your lives, our lives should proclaim that Jesus is God. You've seen, you've testified, you acknowledge all of these things that should be true of our lives that proclaim that we do believe that Jesus is the son of God. He continues and says, we replace fear with perfect love. We replace fear with perfect love. Verse 17, John says, this is how Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What John is doing here is really talking about the future. And he's talking about the future for, for followers of Jesus Christ. Like we have nothing to fear when we look ahead. We know the reality is all of us are gonna spend eternity somewhere, either we spend eternity with God or we spend eternity without God. Either we spend eternity in heaven or we spend eternity in hell. And he's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's no reason to fear. Your eternity is secure. You can know with full assurance that you will spend all of eternity in heaven with God and with Jesus. And even though trials may come, even though storms may come right now and life may get hard and difficult, you can have perfect assurance and confidence that God is with you and that your eternity and your future is secure. So instead of having fear, we're able to replace that fear with God's perfect love that can only be known through him. And then John, he kind of ends chapter four with this summary statement. It's like as if he hasn't been clear enough and he just wants to drive the point home. Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. Again, reiterating something he's already told us before. Anyone who loves God must. It's not optional. We don't get to choose or opt out. We must love. We must love our brothers and sisters. We must love others. And look, I know, I know for me, I'm, I've been a follower of Christ for a long time. I'm a pastor's kid. I've grown up in the church, and I'm so thankful for my family and uh, uh, just my upbringing. And I trusted Christ at an early age. And I know for me, it can be so easy for me to hear these words, yeah, we're to love God and we're to love others. And it can be so easy for me to let the weight and the gravity of what that means practically in my everyday life to just kind of stagnate or flatline or I just, I just lose the importance of what John is urging and saying, look, This is the hallmark of the Christian faith. This is the way your faith would be verified is by the way that you love others. And I know for me too, sometimes I can look around at Christians and I look at the way that they live their lives and I look at some of the relational conflict that they experience and I think, man, we already have have an answer for some of that stuff. I mean, some of the struggle that I see are like basic Christian principles of just seeking to love others. And so I see whether it's conflict in marriages, conflict in family relationships and dynamics or conflicts with with other friends, I just wonder like, man, if we would have just exhibited or you would have just exhibited some basic Christian behaviors, things wouldn't have escalated. Things wouldn't have gotten that bad. That marriage would not have needed to end in divorce. That relationship would not have needed to have dissolved. Things wouldn't have gotten so bad. And so I wonder, man, we go to church, we sing some songs, we, we hear a message and then, Come Monday, do we just go back to living like everybody else? And so when it comes to living like Christians, when it comes to loving like Christians, are we really doing that? 
fact, what does the word Christian mean? It means little Christs. It means that we are to look like and act like and exemplify Jesus and what he modeled for us. And I'm not talking about our theology. I'm not talking about our beliefs, right? We have all of that lined up. I'm talking about in the everyday moments of life where we have a choice. Am I going to love someone else and put them first or am I just going to serve myself? Am I just going to put my myself first? And I think John is saying here, look, you can get everything else wrong, but you can't get this wrong. This isn't just basic. This is fundamental. This is at the epicenter of Christianity. So for some of you, you might be like, okay, Nate, I hear you loud and clear. Love God, love others. But man, what in the world does that look like on a day in and day out basis? And I want to do my best in the remaining time that we have to make this as crystal clear as possible as to what it's to look like for us to love others. In fact, if you're using a study Bible and you look at 1 John chapter 4, just about every study Bible will have a reference to 1 Corinthians 13 here. Because 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. It is the chapter in the Bible where, where Paul, the author, really describes what love is supposed to look like, how it should be characterized. It, it, this should be true. This should be real for those of us as followers of Jesus. And that's a passage we probably have heard at many weddings, and it's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And I just want to walk through this with us to help or us understand or to remind us what love is supposed to look like, what love requires of us as followers of Jesus. Paul starts in verse one and he says this, if I speak in tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Meaning you could be the best communicator, best orator, you could wax eloquently on any subject, any topic, in any language at any point in time. But if you don't have love, you're just noise. You're just some loud, obnoxious sound, kind of like that guy at the Red Wings game. If you've ever been to a Red Wings game, who stands on a crate and with a megaphone and just preaches at people, right? You're just noise, a loud, annoying sound because there's no love in that message. Verse two, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, meaning you could be the best problem solver, you could be the most strategic thinker, you could see a problem, come up with a solution, and fix it quicker than anybody else, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And then look at what Paul says, such extreme language that he uses here in verse three. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He's saying you could be the most generous person. Give your body over to hardship Right, the most generous person that's ever lived. But if you do not have love, you gain nothing. And then Paul transitions here in verse four and gets real practical. And this is where it should get really personal for us. This is where it should get really personal for me and this is where it should get personal for you because what Paul is about to describe is exactly what love must look like or should look like for those that are followers of Christ, that are Christians. Look at what he says in verse four. He says, love is patient. Do you know what patience means? I recently heard this definition that has just stuck with me, but patience means I'm gonna adjust my speed and my pace to yours instead of expecting you to adjust your speed and your pace to mine. I'm gonna be patient. I mean, just think about that one practical example of love, how much that could transform some of our relationships. Your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with other family members or with your kids or with your friends. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be patient. I'm gonna adjust my speed and pace to yours instead of expecting you to adjust your speed and pace to mine. Love is patient. When you're patient, 
You are doing love. He continues, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. See, love celebrates other people. Love is willing to put the spotlight on somebody else with no expectation of the spotlight coming back to you where then you get to share about all your accomplishments and all that you've done. Love doesn't one-up. Um, love is curious. Love asks questions. Love pulls out the best in other people. Why? Because it doesn't boast. Love is not proud. Verse five, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. And this is so important because oftentimes I'll hear people say, look, if you just boil Christianity down to love, make it all about love, then that's an easy, soft, you know, loosey-goosey, anything-goes kind of faith. But that just simply is not true. In fact, this is why Christian love is not sexually promiscuous. This closes the door on 100% of that. If it's not good for him, it's a sin. If it's not good for her, it's a sin. If it's dishonoring to his wife, it is a sin. If it's dishonoring to his children, it's a sin. I am not going to be self-seeking, and by being self-seeking, then dishonor somebody else, because dishonor, that is the opposite of love. So Christian love, it's not soft. It is not permissive. In fact, it's demanding. It is so demanding. Remember that God in his love for you and me gave up his son, and he tells us we're, we're to follow him and follow his example of love. And again, this is the kind of love that is supposed to characterize you and me as followers of Christ. Verse five, he continues, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't mean we don't forget because it's impossible to forget. What it means is we forgive. We cancel that debt. We don't hold on to that record against someone else. We forgive. Verse six, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects I mean, imagine having a friend or a spouse that said, look, I will always protect you. I got your back. I'm gonna be there for you. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna protect your reputation. I'm gonna protect your integrity. I'm there for you. I have your back. Verse uh, seven, he continues. It always protects, it always trusts. Always trusts. You see, when we experience conflict in relationships or whenever there is a gap between what you expect and what you experience in someone, you have a choice. What are you gonna put in that gap? Either you choose to trust that person or you choose to fill that gap with suspicion. And you start telling yourself a story. Whenever there's a gap in our relationships from what you expect and what you experience, you have a choice for what you're gonna put in that gap, either trust or suspicion. Well, he's always late to a meeting. Well, before we rush to judgment, let's assume that there's a good reason for that, right? Love trusts. We choose to trust over being suspicious or tell a story that may or may not be, be true. So we choose to trust, and then it means I'm gonna have a, when there is a gap, I'm gonna come to you. I'm gonna have a conversation with you first before I talk to anyone else. Why? Because love chooses to fill those gaps in our relationship with trust instead of suspicion, instead of gossip, instead of telling a story that may or may not be true. Love always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. And then Paul continues in the next few verses just to talk about a number of things that are gonna pass away over time and then he ends this way. Look at what he says to close out the chapter in verse 13. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Man, look at that list that Paul just outlined for us. And, and I can't help 
but think that all of us are faced with this question of, okay, well, what does love require of me then? If the love that, that John is talking about in 1 John 4, and this love that Paul outlines so clearly for us that ought to be true, that ought to characterize our lives, we have to ask ourselves, what does love require of me? And what love requires is that we must do all of those things. Those aren't optional. We must do all of them. But maybe for some of you, you need to lean into one of those or two of them. Maybe you need to be more trusting. Maybe you need to be just simply kind. You need to work on patience. But what does love require of you? When you go home today, what does love require of you when you step back into your home? When you head into the office tomorrow, what does love require of you? When you're dealing with your kids this week, what does love require of you? And I hope that these words from 1 John 4 and 1 Corinthians 13, man, these come quickly to your mind. And I would encourage you, circle one or two of these that you need to work on. When you look down through that list of 1 Corinthians 13, what's one or two that you need to work on? to better reflect Christ's love. How would those around you describe your love? If we were to take an anonymous survey of the people closest to you, would they say that your love kind of fits that definition we talked about earlier? Like, yeah, he tends to, to act in the best interest of somebody else or not. So this is like a gut level check that I think all of us that bear the name of Jesus, we need to think about. I mean, just think about it. What if we as a church, Northridge Church, we were known for this kind of love we step into our communities and our neighborhoods and our, our friendships of seeking to act in the best interests of somebody else, to love others with an agape kind of love, a pure, selfless, sacrificial love. You see, we don't have to wonder what God desires for us as followers of Christ. He tells us we must love one another. In fact, that is the hallmark of the Christian faith. One of the ways that your faith will be verified is through the way that you treat others, the way that you love others. So. Love, it's simple to understand, but it is difficult to live out, which is why we cannot do it in our own strength. We need the help of God's word. We need his spirit at work in our hearts and in our lives to truly love others in the way that God desires uh, for each of us, for me and for you. So by his strength and his spirit may help us to do that this week. Uh, Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word and just the, the clarity that you give us around what you desire for us. I know love can be confusing, and we may not be certain at times of, of what it means, but I, I, I hope today brought a little bit more clarity around the fact that, God, you're, you're the source of love. You gave us the example of love. We don't have to wonder. God, you've made that clear, and I know it's challenging. I know it's hard. But I pray, God, that this wouldn't be something that just slips back, put on the back burner, and we stop trying, or we don't intentionally seek to put the needs of others before our own. God, we can't do that. We must do that. You've placed us here to make your name great, to reflect your love. So I pray, God, that it would be something that that I take more seriously, that I'm more intentional about the way that I'm treating others. And is it reflecting your love or not? God, I pray for us as a church that we would be known, that we'd be characterized as the love that you've described here in 1 John chapter 4. God, help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.